0: Sarah Levy is the author of Drinking Games, a memoir of essays about her experience when she stopped drinking five years ago. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Cut, Vogue, and Cup of Joe, among other publications. She also writes the newsletter, Seltzer Rocks, and currently lives in Los Angeles by way of New York. Sarah, welcome to Morning Person Newsletter. Thanks, Leslie. I'm so happy to be here. So excited to chat with you. I honestly am so excited to talk to you because I feel like I've been sort of living in your head the past few days because I was familiar with your writing, with your byline about your coverage of sobriety for sites like Cup of Joe. I think that that article came out like three or four years ago, I remember saying it, Yeah, but Yes. But I hadn't read your book until like within the past week. And so I feel like I've just been sort of like living with you and your thoughts. But one of the things that I kept thinking about while I was reading it is just what was it like for you to write this book? It's so vulnerable. It's so open. Um, How was that?
1: Yeah. You know, I sometimes will look back on it now and I'm like, wow, I can't believe that anyone can read this. This is so personal, but at the time it felt really cathartic. You know, it was a lot like journaling, which is a practice that I have sort of had in one form or another for most of my life. I started keeping journals when I was like eight years old. So um, it's always felt very natural for me to like process experiences through writing. And most of the time when I was working on like early drafts of this book, I just sort of felt like it was the same sort of thing just me and a blank page kind of processing a lot of a lot of these topics my history with alcohol my relationship with drinking why I decided to get sober and then everything that came you know in in the years that followed and so it felt very natural to to write about it what's sometimes unnatural is when I realize my random like science teacher from middle school could pick this up and read it like that's sort of Mm -hmm. always a strange moment but by and large, I think I just didn't think too much about it when I was writing it and um, just sort of left it all on the page.
0: Cause you really can't think about that, can you? Because otherwise I feel like you're just absolutely frozen. Like I write very vulnerably in my newsletter and I truly just write it as if nobody's going to read it. And it's just this journal entry for myself. Cause I think when you start thinking about that, like, oh my God, my elementary school math teacher could read this, yeah. that's when it's really terrifying. Exactly.
1: I think you really have to separate. And I think that's the case with any art form, right? An actor Mm -hmm. would probably say they're not thinking about the audience member that's sitting and watching, you know, and what their reaction Mm -hmm. will be or what the critic will say. I think it's just sort of like you and whatever your craft is. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think also, you know, as a writer, I had always heard, write what you know, write what's, true. And so that was sort of my guiding light throughout it all was anytime I would sort of come up against fear or, you know, just some anxiety about being so, so vulnerable. I would just remind myself, you know, I enjoy reading things that are true. And you, mm-hmm. as a, a reader, you know, you're smart. You can tell when someone's holding back or when someone's being genuine mm-hmm. and authentic. And so I would always just try to like push myself to tell the full truth in, in the writing of it.
0: And you do that so many times. I mean, one of the things that struck me is that you set the record straight on a lot of white lies that you told during your time when you were drinking. I mean, there was this entire incident where I think you fell down on a curb and you ended up in the hospital and you told your parents and you told a friend of yours that you had been hit by a car. What was it like? And do you have any subsequent conversations with the people that you wrote about in your book after sort of exposing the number of things that you maybe fabricated over the years?
1: So I definitely have had conversations with my parents about some of the white lies that I told, you know, and I think that in retrospect, it's sort of insane that I felt like it would be less worrisome to them if I told them that Mm. I had been hit by a moving vehicle than if I told them the truth, which was I got really drunk at brunch and fell down and don't remember what happened and someone called 911. I felt like I had to... Protect them and also protect myself. Right? There was a lot of shame, and um, I also honestly wasn't ready to stop drinking. And so I think I kind of knew that if I was honest with them about what was going on, they would probably say you shouldn't drink so much, or you need you know mm-hmm. you need to stop And so we definitely have had subsequent conversations about that, especially since now it is published in the book. Um you know and in terms of friends and other people who were on like the receiving end of different white lies i think yes and no some of them have read the book and we've talked about it other people i haven't heard from and i think it's sort of um my way of like making amends is to just be honest now moving forward mm-hmm. with the people that are in my life and and with myself as as much as i can because i think you know when for me like i was so wrapped up in this cycle of binge drinking and doing things I regretted waking up hungover feeling really anxious lying just became something that I really relied on to Mm -hmm. make sense of the way that I was living and it's such a relief now to to be sober and to not have to do
0: that anymore not have to kind of juggle Mm -hmm. all these like little lies And it's so interesting because i'm currently getting my master's in addictions counseling so i'm of course reading your book sort of through the lens of everything that i'm learning about addiction in school which is Mm -hmm. i entered my program i've been in it for about a year and a half and i entered with a really simple idea of what addiction is it's the sort of disease model it's this disease it's something that's sort of coded into your brain you either have it or you don't and my idea of it and concept of it is so much more nuanced now. And one of the hallmarks of addiction is that addiction always wants to hide itself. So this concept of, you know, your alcohol use disorder wanted you to tell these lies. Mm -hmm.
1: It's interesting you say that. I've heard variations on that concept in recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, people say like addiction can't live in the light or, you know, the Mm -hmm. opposite of addiction is connection, right? And the idea Mm -hmm. I think is Addiction, or you know, being dependent on alcohol on on a substance, right? Whatever the label is that you want to put on it, it thrives when like I'm all alone and not surrounded by other people, or keeping secrets or telling lies because that shame is the self fulfilling prophecy. You know, it keeps me feeling even worse after I've told a lie, and that shame ultimately leads me to drink again, and so that that cycle the isolation, the, the secrecy it all, I think is really wrapped up in the way that, you know, I, I was drinking.
0: Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about the point that you decided to break that cycle because you got sober. I think it was five years ago. Now, what was the turning point for you?
1: So I got sober. Yeah, it'll be six years in September. I would. Congratulations. Thank you. I had just turned 28. It was four days after Mm -hmm. my birthday. And it wasn't the first time I had contemplated getting sober. Um, I had sort of gone back and forth with the idea for the better part of five years at that point. You know, every time I had a bad night out, every time I sent a drunk text that I regretted, woke up with a horrible hangover, woke up next to someone not knowing if we had slept together, like all those tiny moments had been, you know, kind of building and and compounding. But um, I had never felt like truly, truly ready. And I think that there was something about my birthday where I had made all these promises to myself about what this year of my life was going to look like. I had just moved into a studio apartment in Brooklyn. I was so excited to be on my, you know, in my own place. And I had gotten this like white bedspread and had told myself like, I'm not going. And I was always, which is very dangerous now and scary to think about, but I always Threw up when I was really drunk in my sleep and would wake mm. up with vomit in my hair or on my pillowcase or whatever. And so I told myself, like, this clean white bedspread is a symbol of this like new chapter of my life where I mm. won't be, you know, getting so drunk. I'm going to just reel it in a little bit. And, you know, of course, my birthday came and I got really drunk. And it was like a couple of weeks after I had moved and I woke up and like there was vomit all over my bedspread and it was like the same thing. And Um, I spent that next week sort of, you know, thinking like something needs to change. And, um, the, the following weekend I went out to dinner with, with a friend and, um, at the time we worked together and I had every intention of just having a couple of drinks and I ended up in the same position. I woke up the next morning, had blacked out, drank too much, and had no memory of how the night had ended. And I just had this moment where it really hit me. You know, I felt like I've lost the power of choice when it comes to my drinking. You know, I had I have spent the last few days because previously it was very easy for me to tell myself a story, you know, that I wanted to get really drunk. It was a fun night. Everyone was getting drunk and I made up these excuses. And, you know, this few days, like certain things had happened that I just was like, I couldn't tell myself I was happy that I had thrown up on my new bedspread. And then a few days later done the exact same thing when I had set the intention to not get so drunk. And it was really the first moment that I realized I, I don't have control over what happens when I start to drink, you know, not every single time that I drink is the worst night ever, but usually when something bad happens, I've been drinking and, it was this like tiny glimmer of willingness and desperation to just make a change. Um, I didn't drink that day. I didn't drink the next day and and kind of just have continued from there taking it one day at a time.
0: Wow. I mean, it's so interesting because we started this conversation by talking about the lies that you would tell each other, but it sounds like you just, you couldn't keep lying to yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a hundred percent it. I think I really had reached the end of my rope when it came to Mm -hmm. being able to lie to myself and tell myself, like, this is fun. You know, everybody's doing it Um, because everybody wasn't doing it and it wasn't fun. It really had stopped being fun, waking up and feeling absolutely horrible.
0: (laughs) It's so interesting. And I can completely relate to that because that idea of the people that you surround yourself with are telling you oh this is normal this is fun like there was a part in your book that really struck me where you had woken up in the hospital after this brunch and you called somebody who you were with and you asked him what happened he said oh i don't know i woke up in the hospital too and sort of shook it off like of course we woke up in the hospital no big deal Mm -hmm. um but of course that's a fairly extreme thing to happen It is.
1: And I think, you know, in retrospect, I was very careful with the people that I was hanging out with and drinking with by the end. You know, I had a group of really good friends from college who didn't drink the way that I did. Um, They liked to go out, they liked to have fun, but they knew when to switch to water. They knew when to, you know, kind of turn in for the night. And I ended up kind of making other friends in New York when I was living um, I was living in the city at the time who did want to stay out late, who did want to kind of go to another bar after everyone was leaving the first one. And in that sense, I think it was really normalized for me in a lot of ways. And yeah, I mean, that reaction from that friend, I think also sort of diminished my own fear and, you know, the severity of the reaction that I was having, because I was really freaked out waking up in the hospital. Like I knew that that Mm -hmm. wasn't good. And then I think him saying, oh yeah, I also blacked out and someone, you know, we were both, I guess, in the same ambulance going to the emergency room, which I don't remember. Um, Mm. His reaction kind of made me feel like, oh, maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe we just both like we're overserved and um
0: mm-hmm.
1: in retrospect, like no, I was hanging out with people who were also drinking too much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so interesting how that made your voice smaller to yourself.
1: I did have that experience. I definitely felt like in the first few months and then subsequent years after getting sober, I was just able to listen to myself, you know, and even with writing that had been something I was always passionate about. I always loved to read. I I had studied creative writing in college and I couldn't string two sentences together. You know, even like my journal entries from the last few years that I was drinking were really sparse because I was just not able to access kind of my authentic self. And I think that the longer that I've stayed sober, I've been able to really, reconnect with different parts of myself that Mm -hmm. i didn't realize were so had been so um, muted when i was drinking
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because i mean there were so many things i'm gonna say this this entire time because i just read this and i feel like i underlined half of your book because i was like this makes sense to me this makes sense to me i have a diary entry that looks just like this like it was really uncanny to read it but one of the things that you talked about is how you kept looking for solutions to sort of fill this sensation of emptiness mm-hmm. um, and that that was happening a lot when you were drinking, where you sort of felt like I have a career, I have friends, I'm dating, I'm young and fabulous in New York. And yet there's something that's not there. Mm-hmm. What? Like, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yes, I feel like I had
1: kind of like a hole in me that I was walking around with my whole adult, no pun intended, my entire adult life. I was walking (laughs) this hole inside um, and I was trying to fill it with all kinds of things, you know, with the shiny objects, with the attention from men, getting into a good college, the job, the promotion. And it's always something else, right? Because the truth is it's an inside job. Nothing on the outside is going to help me feel better when it's coming from within. Um, But this, there was this myth that I, you know, if I had just, if I tried hard enough, if I worked out enough, if I was small enough, I had the right clothes, the right friends, was going to the right parties, that I would somehow feel like I was enough. And when I drank, I felt like I was the closest that I could get to being enough, right? It was this instant, source of relief where I felt confident and I felt like I was funny and I was pretty and people were interested in me. And of course it was fleeting. And just like I always wanted more validation or more kind of external stuff. I, I wanted more alcohol once I started drinking. So the two really went hand in hand. And, you know, when all of that was stripped away and look, I I'm a human. So even after I eliminated alcohol, I still reached for the shiny things, you know, I still felt like, okay, if I just, continue doing really well at work. Like it doesn't matter that I am struggling to stay sober and not telling anyone, or, you know, there's always a different, I think, shiny item to reach for. But for me, the work has continued to be reminding myself that there's no object or title or, um, accomplishment that will make me feel whole. If that's not, if that's not something that I genuinely believe and, um, ultimately like that comes from therapy and that comes from just like healing, you know,
0: mm-hmm. there's really something about sobriety that makes you look so deeply at yourself. And I think that that's one of the most terrifying things about it. There's like the process of stopping drinking. That's, you know, this sort of physical sobriety. And then there's this emotional sobriety that follows where all of a sudden it's like, Oh, it's just me. I don't have any of the things I used to dull this feeling. I have to actually address this whole this emptiness that I'm feeling. It's scary, you know, and
1: I think like there's tools, you know, and I just wrote about this in my newsletter recently, like the tools that I rely on, right. To keep Mm -hmm. me feeling good in sobriety. And so there's meditation and there's doing gratitude lists and connecting with other people, you know, that I feel like I can be honest with, but some days, like I just still have that feeling that like, I'm not enough. Everyone's better than me. Everyone's perfect and I somehow missed the day in school where we learned how to be perfect and you know it's just I think ongoing work because I'm not numbing out with a drink in those moments where I Mm -hmm. really need to sit in it sit through the discomfort and um as best I can just try to get out of my own head in those moments
0: Mm -hmm. At what point in your sobriety did you start to discover those tools? Was that early on or was that something that came to you sort of as you recovered?
1: So I early in my sobriety, a therapist suggested that I try a 12 step program and I ended up meeting a lot of other sober women through those groups. And so they made these suggestions to me pretty early on. Um, Mm -hmm. and I didn't take them all right off the bat. Writing gratitude lists was something that felt manageable enough. And I had always journaled. So I felt like, okay, I could do this. I can write five things every day that I do feel grateful for. Meditation did not come to me easily. It did not come to me right away. Um, and even sharing honestly with other people, you know, sober friends or or just friends of mine, like old friends, that was hard for me because I had always, like I said, wanted everything to seem perfect and wanted everyone to think that like I had all the answers and um, I was like self-deprecating and sarcastic. And so I, I, it was hard for me to kind of be vulnerable and say like, I'm struggling in real time. And so that was, that is a tool that I have continued to work on over time and I'm still working on it. Like, especially as a writer, and I don't know if you relate to this because you also write so vulnerably, it is easier for me to write about something that I'm struggling with and share it with A large audience than it is for me to call a friend and say, I'm 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. People are like, it's so vulnerable that you write and share about it. And I'm like, it's easier for me to write and click and put it out into the void than it is for me to have a one-on-one conversation and say, I'm having a hard time right now.
0: I can't tell you how many times I've written something where I've gotten a million texts from my friends who are like, I had no idea you were going through this. I'm so sorry. I would have been there for you. Um, you know, like last month, I wrote about having this breakdown where I separated from my husband a year ago. And I was sort of like, this is fine. We're doing great. Like just stuffing my emotions into a box just to sort of make it through. And then almost, you know, about 11 months after we separated, I had this moment where I was like, oh, my God, I'm divorced. This is terrible. What's happening? Everything's bad. And I basically cried for a month mm-hmm. and I wrote about that experience on morning person, and so many of my friends texted me and were like, you were crying about that <laughs> like I had no idea, but it, it can be easier. And I think. There's also a safety in being able to, at least for me, and I'm also a daily journaler. I swear by it. I'm looking like I have my journal right here. I always write my yeah. little moleskin. Yeah. Um, Literally, this the page I'm currently on says therapy at the top. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like therapy and journaling absolutely touchstones of my life. Mm-hmm. But there's something that's safer about putting these emotions into words instead of just calling a friend and saying. I'm not doing so great right now. A hundred
1: percent. I relate so much. And I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know if it's people pleasing for me, right? Like I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. I don't want anyone to feel like the burden of having to make me feel better. Um, What if I don't feel better? What if they give me really good advice and I don't feel better and then I'm disappointing them. Um, And, and I have had, I've had, a couple of friends actually say, like, I want you to come to me when things are Mm
0: -hmm. going
1: on. Like, I I don't like reading about it. It makes me feel like we're not that close, you know? Um, And it's not that at all. It's just, it's hard for me. It's still hard for me to be vulnerable in real time. I've gotten better at it, right? When I was drinking, I didn't have any outlet for it. I couldn't even be honest with myself. Like I was saying earlier, Um, so at least now (laughs) I can get to a place where I'm honest with myself, even though like you, I can stuff feelings
0: sometimes. And, you know, and then after six months be like, Oh, I'm really upset about that. Actually. Totally. Totally. And it's so interesting. And it reminds me of something that Brene Brown talks about in her research on shame, that there's this duality where we feel like our friends don't want to hear us talk about the bad things. And a big Mm -hmm. thing for me is I feel like I don't want my friends to feel like responsible for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it does come down to this people pleasing thing. But then there's nothing to me that feels better than when a friend comes to me, because that Mm -hmm. means like this is a true friendship. You've trusted me deeply to help you. And so why do we have such a hard time doing the same in the opposite direction?
1: It's so true. And I was talking about this with a therapist, my therapist recently, and she said, you know, we're actually robbing your friends of the opportunity to have that experience, you know, and really be there for you because like you, it feels, I feel so good when someone comes to me and says like, this is what's going on and allows me to be there for them. Right. And gives me the opportunity to just like sit there and listen. And and even if I don't have advice, I can just We can exchange that energy of like having an honest conversation. She was like, you know, true intimacy requires that exchange. And so Mm -hmm. when I'm not allowing my friends to be there for me, I'm actually like blocking myself and them from having like a deep relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because one of the things that you explore in your book is how you had so much fear about, as soon as you stopped drinking, that you might not have friendships, or you might not be able to form a meaningful romantic relationship because how the hell are you supposed to date if you don't have alcohol? Uh-huh. But you actually met your husband and the name that you use in the book, I think is Adam. Is that actually his it name? Is? Yeah. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, so you met you met Adam. Um, i I guess, shortly, relatively shortly after getting sober, what was that experience like?
1: Yeah. So Adam and I were introduced by a mutual friend when I had been sober about a year and a half. So Mm -hmm. I had gone on my fair share of awkward first sober dates, had kind of gotten that out of my system. I had developed sort of a procedure that I followed where in which, you know, I told guys before we met, like over text, by the way, I don't drink, um, just to avoid any awkwardness in person. Mm -hmm. And I did have a couple of guys who stopped texting me and were like, not interested in going out after that. Totally fine. Great information to have. And thank you for saving me like an evening of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. so Adam, yeah, Adam knew going into our first date that I didn't drink and, What was the experience like? You know, I had this idea of what being in like a relationship or in lust with someone looked like, and it was very passionate and volatile and dramatic and um, definitely like Drunken fights, or right, like being jealous, or who are you texting? And that was what I knew that was my college boyfriend that was you know the 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 guys that I liked and kind of hooked up with and dated in my early twenties. And Adam was very steady. He was just different. You know, he was a little bit older. I was twenty nine when we met. he was thirty two or thirty three Not like a huge mm-hmm. difference, but um, he just. I think had gotten a lot out of his system and we were really in like a similar place where we were genuinely interested in getting to know each other. And, um, it was like all the things that people say that I always thought were cheesy and kind of like BS. It was easy. It was very comfortable. It was, I felt really happy when I was with him. I didn't stress out about if I was going to hear from him in between dates. Um, Mm. And it was also scary because he was so wonderful and so kind and and really showed up when he said he would and made plans and was very clear that he was excited about me and pursuing something between us. And so I definitely had moments where I was like, this is like, why is this so easy? Why is this so good? I don't deserve Mm -hmm. this, you know, and Mm -hmm. I, I don't. And I think also, you know, we get comfortable with what we know. I didn't have any experience with a relationship like that, mm-hmm. so um, I think it was it, it was a whirlwind in a lot of ways, and in um, others, progressed like exactly the way that it was meant to. Um, and we, yeah, we've been together
0: a little over four years now, and married for mm. almost, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that you just touched on is this instinct to immediately go to this place of like this sort of, I don't know if self hate is too strong a word, but that's the way that I experience it. where it's this incredibly mean way of talking to yourself where you say like, mm-hmm. oh, he's nice, but I don't deserve this. Or mm-hmm. there's this inherent mistrust. What is your relationship like with that voice now? And how has that changed in your sobriety?
1: Great question. That voice is still there in other arenas of my life. And I kind of, I call her the critic. She's very good. Mm-hmm. Everything. She more so likes to focus these days on my writing and, um, my like overall productivity, especially mm-hmm. I'm pregnant. And, um, the mm-hmm. first congratulations, by Thank the way, you, you just sort of blew past that, that you are pregnant so, with you. your first, with my first, yes. We're expecting mm-hmm. our first, um, And, you know, the first trimester, you're really not feeling your best. And so the critic Mm -hmm. really liked to kind of make jabs at me when I needed to take a nap or wasn't necessarily like doing as much as I had been previously. Um, So she's still there, but I've gotten a lot better at, or I'm working on getting better at just observing those thoughts, naming them when they come Mm -hmm. up, you know, being like, thank you so much for chiming in. We're not going to listen to you today. Like... Um, but in terms of the relationship, relationship stuff, um, the voice got quieter the longer that Adam and I were together. I think the more that he just, the more evidence that I had, the more information I continued to collect that he wasn't going anywhere, that this wasn't like some elaborate scheme to make me trust him so that he could then like pull the rug out from under me, um, that that voice got quieter. And now you know, when I talk to friends who are still single and dating, I am that annoying person that's like, don't settle. You deserve everything. You know, you deserve someone who's nice Mm -hmm. to you. You deserve someone who makes you feel special, who remembers, you know, the offhand comment that you made about the restaurant you want to try and makes the reservation, right? Like those little Mm -hmm. things. Um, We all deserve that. And I think, yeah, I think like the more evidence I collected, the quieter that voice became. And
0: it's interesting that it takes evidence because I think that that is one of the things about sobriety, that we have all of these assumptions. And I don't consider myself entirely sober, but I drink almost never. And I really stopped drinking in February of last year. But that experience sort of kicked off this absolute fucking domino effect in my life where all of a sudden it was like, I woke up and realized like, oh, there are so many things in my life that I have been doling instead of facing head on. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I stopped drinking in February and then sort of realized over that spring and summer that my marriage wasn't working. And it was sort of this like extreme facing of reality. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that was sort of your experience too with your relationship with Adam, but also in so many other ways.
1: Yeah. It's so true. And congrats on removing alcohol or just like drinking less. It's a huge shift. And it's scary to do. Um
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that's amazing. Um yeah, you know, I think with with the not drinking part of things. I had a lot of sober references that I collected over that first year or two that really proved certain things to me. So I, mm-hmm. for example, was totally terrified at the idea of going to a wedding without drinking and found myself at like eight, my first year sober because I was 29 and a lot of my friends were getting married. And um, wedding after wedding, dance floor after dance floor. I collected sober references with this clear head that, oh, I actually have fun at weddings. I don't have to be the last person to leave, but I'm really happy for the person who's getting, people who are getting married. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: I actually like eating the wedding cake instead of being at the bar taking tequila shots, right? So mm-hmm. I started collecting information and my perspective changed. Similarly to what you're saying, my eyes opened to other aspects of my life, right? Like the job I was in, I was working in marketing, going to work every day, nine to five, not writing. Um, And it became harder and harder to ignore that this was really what I wanted to do and really what I wanted to focus on, you know? And um, yeah, there's so many examples, friendships that started to look different and just even being open to different possibilities and to, to unknowns and sort of trusting that it would be okay because these other experiences that I had 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 also turned out okay um, in sobriety.
0: I love that term that you use sober references and I've never heard it before, but I'm immediately thinking of how many sober references that I've experienced for myself where we have these assumptions of like, yeah, weddings are gonna be terrible or I'm gonna hate going out to dinner with my friends. I'm the only one who can't have a glass of wine. And then I keep having these corrective experiences. Like I just went away for this weekend to the coast. And I was sort of like, ah, like I want to be able to have like a big beer after hiking, but I, I know that I shouldn't. And what I discovered is that if I had had beer at 3 PM after my hike, I would have probably been tired and need to Mm -hmm. sit down or whatever, like take an easy afternoon. And instead I literally went on a hike, had lunch and then went on another hike and just like continued this energy throughout the afternoon. But it was this very corrective experience of like, Oh, these great things actually can happen when you don't drink. Who knew?
1: A hundred percent. I completely agree. And I had a similar experience on my honeymoon, right? I was around all these couples and we're in Hawaii and people are having cocktails on the beach. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. it would be really nice to have like a pina colada or whatever and just like sip on a fruity drink. And like you, I play the tape forward. I sort of like think, what does that movie look like? Right. I have that Mm -hmm. drink. I probably want another one or I just have one, but then I get sleepy and then I fall asleep and I wake up and I'm dehydrated and I have a headache and I'm kind of cranky and I'm trying to snap out of it so that I can go to dinner with my husband. But, you know, then I need to have another drink at dinner and I wake up the next day and it's like it continues. It continues. And instead, Mm -hmm. I'm clear headed on the beach. I'm reading my book. I'm hydrated. I take a nap. I don't wake up feeling horrible. I go for a swim, you know, and it's just totally like, flows kind of seamlessly when I'm not introducing alcohol into the equation. Um, even if it is just one drink, it's that kind of it the effect that it has cumulatively over time.
0: Totally. Yeah. And even this idea of playing the tape forward and Um, I actually wanted to ask you because I know that you're very into manifesting. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that and how that sort of shows up in your life and how you use this concept of manifesting? Because it's something that I've sort of started to explore recently. Like I call myself a compulsively future oriented person, Mm -hmm. which I think is maybe like a maladaptive form of manifesting. But for you, it's been this really powerful experience. It has. Mm -hmm. And. I am
1: not a super, like, woo-woo person. I'm pretty practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, like, grounded in logic. I think the things through. Um, mm-hmm. But, and so I definitely had this, like, preconceived notion of what manifestation was. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just saying, like, I want a million dollars. And then, like, I wipe my hands and sit back and wait for a million dollars to appear. It's not that. Um but I'll back up a little bit. My introduction to manifestation came at a workshop that I attended in Brooklyn. Um, It wasn't my idea to go. I was invited and sort of just like in my era of saying yes to things. I was Mm -hmm. a year and a half sober. And the workshop was, had been facilitated by this um, young professional women's groups. There were a lot of women my age, other New Yorkers who were really ambitious and high functioning. And we were led through this 20-minute guided meditation by a manifestation coach. And the goal of the exercise was to visualize our lives five years in the future in very clear detail. And through the guided meditation, she asked, she had all these prompts, you know, where do you wake up and what does the room sound like? And what do you mm. think, are you wearing? And how do you feel? And like very specific questions. And I just let myself picture, this scene, this day, five years in the future. And it was completely different than what my life looked like at the time. I woke up in the meditation vision, um, mm-hmm. in a, in a different house, you know, not in my apartment that I lived in, I was near the ocean. So I wasn't in New York city. Um, it was very quiet. I, you know, I was working full-time as an author, Um, and at the time that I attended this workshop, I was still working in marketing. So I was single when I went to the workshop, I envisioned myself married and with a, with a child baby. And, um, I remember kind of looking around afterwards and thinking, okay, well, that's not that special. Like I pictured myself living near the beach, working as an author in a loving relationship. Like everyone wants that. Who doesn't want that? You know, and that was why I had never really let myself, I think subconsciously, take steps toward that goal before, because I thought everyone wants that. It's like wanting to be a ballerina because I wanted it so badly my whole life. I had wanted to be a writer. And I just thought like people don't, people can't do that. Like that's just a dream. And um, the next part of the workshop was we went and, you know, had a group of people around us and we were supposed to go in a circle and everyone spoke out loud what they had envisioned. And the women in my group had completely different visions. Mm. This woman was like, I envisioned myself um, running a coffee shop. Someone was like, I see myself in business school. I see myself doing ceramics, like living Mm. in different cities, like just completely different lives. And I was like, wow, no one had the exact same vision that I did. And also I heard all these beautiful images. And I remember thinking like, you should totally do that. You could do that. Like you could go to business school, you could open a cool Mm -hmm. cafe. Like, and I remember leaving and thinking maybe I could do this too. Mm -hmm. But there's like another component to manifestation that's interesting, which is detachment. And Mm -hmm. the idea I think is like, you and again i'm not an expert in this 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 was just like what i learned that day but i think the idea is you envision your goals and your dreams very very clearly and then you detach from your idea of the timeline and how it will come to you and when it will come to you right um but i think you remain open to different signs and different paths in that direction Mm -hmm. and so what ended up happening for me was i think a week after i went to that workshop I ran into the friend who ended up introducing me to Adam Mm. and she was like, I actually know this guy that you might like, would you be open to being set up? I didn't think in that moment, I just had this manifestation workshop where I envisioned myself Mm -hmm. there. maybe he's the guy, but I had left the workshop thinking like, I'm going to say yes to different experiences um, and just see what comes. And so I said, yes, Mm -hmm. I met him. Two years later, you know, we were engaged or two years later, we were married. Um, and so that timeline, I couldn't have like predicted or controlled, but one thing did lead to the next. And similarly with my writing, I started freelance writing. I started pitching essays to different publications like Cup of Joe, which you mentioned, the, mm-hmm. year, was the cut. And, you know, I was still working at the time, but little by little, as I was doing more writing, it became clear that this is what I really wanted to do. And, um, eventually started doing it Mm -hmm. full-time probably like six or seven months after that. So, I mean, it kind of all came when it was supposed to come, but that workshop was my first experience with it. And I still enjoy manifestation as a form of goal setting, um, -hmm. a relaxed form of goal setting through
0: meditation. Totally. I think one of the reasons that that story is so compelling to me is that, I like you have always been sort of somebody with a five year plan where it's like, okay, I'll do this, this, this and this, And this is how my life will work. And I sort of stayed on a fairly limited um, in scope track where I was just like, okay, I'm going to get a good job. I'm going to, you know, meet a nice guy. I'm going to get married. I'm going to do this. But it wasn't, you know, like you said, your vision looks different from what my vision looks like when I sort of think about this and I manifest and, it I'm also like a very pragmatic person would have never described myself as woo woo. And like, you know, would have absolutely just shot that down. But recently I was talking to my aunt, um, a couple of weeks ago and I was sort of saying, you know, one of my visions for myself, if I was to close my eyes and say, where am I waking up? Um, I really want to build myself a home in a forest, like, that is what i'm interested in i also want to be a full-time writer but it's like this vision of being in the trees having trails right outside of my door like that's what i want and it sort of stresses me out i think i wasn't understanding the detachment piece i was like okay like how do i make this happen what do i have to do what doors do i have to break down to make sure i get my little forest home and I was talking to my aunt about it, who is very spiritual and very in touch with these things in a way that I have never historically been. And she said, Leslie, what you need to do, write it down on a piece of paper, go go insane, like write down your whole vision, write down exactly what you want the hardware in your house to look like, and then say, like, you know, have a little moment with it, light a candle, and then close it and put it away. Like, yeah, that's all you have to do. A hundred
1: percent. That's exactly what this manifestation teacher who by the way you should follow on Instagram and everyone should follow who's listening her handle is at Nirvana n u u r v a n a um okay got it <laughs> just tons of tips for manifestation um and yes that's exactly what she had us do was write down our whole vision I skipped that part before we shared it with the people around us we mm. were would- and then, yes, she was like, close it, put it aside, speak it into existence, and then go back to your life. And I think that's a really crucial part of it all.
0: Mm-hmm. and You know, I didn't want this whole conversation. I feel like now I'm like, no, this is just a talk about manifestations of sobriety. But I do think that they go so hand in hand because there's this clarity that you get when you stop drinking about what you really want. And I think that had you had this Manifestation exercise, there would have been something missing that mm-hmm. if, if you were still drinking, where it might have been the vision wouldn't be as clear enough where you wouldn't have been ready to accept it possibly. Definitely. That's a really
1: good point. I've actually never thought about what would that vision have been if I was still drinking. I think it would have just been smaller. Like I think that, you mm-hmm. know, my wildest dream when I before I got sober was that I would get promoted at my current company. And like that was really it. I don't know, maybe find a boyfriend, but I didn't really think. All I thought about was, what are we doing this weekend? Where are we going? What workout am I doing? Like it was, and sometimes I would like touch the surface of a dream. I really want to be a writer. That was a childhood dream that still was in me, but it had just become so dormant. So I, I don't mm-hmm. think I really allowed myself to access that. I think also with what we we're talking about with sober references. The longer I stayed sober, you know, I felt proud of myself. It was an accomplishment. And I think that built self-esteem where I sort of started to think, well, if I could do this, like, what else can I do?
0: Totally. And I think that that's the thing about sobriety. It's not like, oh, because you stop drinking alcohol, the whole world opens up to you. And it's just like this automatic thing. But I think it's this huge first step mm-hmm. that allows you to keep opening other doors is the way that I've experienced it. I completely agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, you know, before we sort of wrap up this call, this conversation, how, what does your sobriety look like today? It's been nearly six years. And I also want to know, how do you take care of yourself with your sobriety and maintain it?
1: Yeah. My sobriety today in a lot of ways looks pretty similar to what it looked like when I first stopped drinking. It's not, it's like a pretty simple, foundation um it's not complicated um but I do have to be consistent with it so you know I always say like the only thing I do perfectly every day is not pick up a drink or a drug that's it on days where I do nothing else that's still a good day um mm-hmm. I remember hearing people say if you have a good day and you don't drink you have that's a good day if you have a bad day and you don't drink that's a great day um mm-hmm. so a lot of the time you know I like I'm just like okay, I'm not gonna drink I'm not gonna drink today. But the longer you stay sober, I think for me, at least I've found that I require other things to feel really, really good. Um, So what that looks like starting like when I wake up in the morning is I usually start the day with meditation. Again, nothing crazy. Sometimes it's a two minute guided meditation. Sometimes it's I'm walking my dog and I kind of do like a walking meditation. Other times it's 10, 15 minutes, but it's really helpful for me to have A few minutes of just quiet grounding with myself, with my thoughts. I do wake up feeling like I'm in the middle of a sentence in my brain. So just taking that time to come back to equilibrium is really helpful. Um, I try to be fairly active. I think another kind of phrase or, um, cliche that I, that I remember hearing when I first got sober was move a muscle, change a thought. And Mm -hmm. so on days where I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling um, maybe a little stuck on like a writing project or whatever I have going on. I find that if I go for a walk or do some form of exercise, my mind feels clearer. Um, And then, you know, I still do attend recovery meetings. I think of it like, I don't feel like I'll drink if I don't attend them. I think of it more so the way like I think of going to yoga or something. It's just a practice going. I feel really good after I go. So I don't try, try not to like overcomplicate it and overthink it. And I also have a community, you know, I have today like really meaningful friendships with other people who are sober. Um, and I try to stay connected with those people. So I make phone calls, I get coffee with people and I'm honest about what's going on in my life today. Right. Because that's the biggest thing is even though, the obsession to drink has been lifted for me and I don't feel like I'm going to pick up a drink, I still have to monitor my thinking, you know, and I still have to mm-hmm. be on whatever I'm obsessing about or whatever I'm telling myself is the answer to my current, like, emotional state, right? And um, just really keeping it simple one day at a time has been has been really, really helpful for me. Um, and I also still do gratitude lists. I still journal, so yeah, it takes a lot, right? I'm like it's really simple, but it's like a 10-step routine yeah, and get... it really is. Yeah. I don't, I don't do it all every day. So I try to do three things for my recovery every day. Some days that's meditating, working out and calling a friend. Other days that's going to a meeting, calling a friend and writing a gratitude list. Like I don't do all those things every single day. Um but I try I try to, you know, to at least like do a few.
0: I love that concept so much. Of doing three things for your recovery every day because even people who are not in recovery from an addiction, I think there's so much to learn from that because recovery, you can just swap that in with for yourself every day. Like, what are you doing to feel grounded and good and in this sort of stable place? And that's really what recovery is. It is. Yeah. And recovery from anything,
1: you know, I love seeing people's morning routines on like Instagram and TikTok. Sometimes they're like a little elaborate and I'm like, there's no way you do that every single day, but <laughs> I, I like the concept, right? Because I think we're, a lot of us are in mm-hmm. recovery from something or we're healing from disordered eating or a toxic relationship or mm-hmm. overworking, you know, at a job, whatever it may have been. And so I love the idea of a morning routine and just like a set of practices that make up you know your self-care
0: sarah i love a morning routine more than anything in the world really? and I'm, I'm a morning person and my morning routine is so simple i literally like i wake up i go for a walk for an hour every morning i come back i drink coffee I read poetry and journal, which now that I'm saying all that, I'm like, it sounds like a lot of moving parts, but it's, it, it is basic. I'm not like, oh, I'm yeah. doing like gua sha and like this whole wellness routine or anything. I'm just like, Same. I have my walk, I have my poetry, I have my coffee. It's done. Same. Um, I, one... <laughs> one thing that I forgot to mention that's part of my morning,
1: yeah. is really simple, but I incorporated when I got sober is I make my bed every single morning, like before I mm. do bed and it's such a small thing, but I didn't really make my bed when I was drinking. You know, I would just maybe like throw the comforter up and like, it makes such a difference. I feel like I've already accomplished something small by the time that I'm like going to like walk my dog or have my coffee and getting in bed at the end of the day when like the bed has been nicely
0: made. Like I just feel like mm. I'm taking care of myself. So that's another like small one. That's exactly right. And it honestly, it comes back and it reminds me to it reminds me what you were talking about with your sheets earlier, this idea of like buying yourself these beautiful sheets and this, you know, this routine of making your bed every morning. And it almost feels like this confirmation of how far you've come to me. <laughs> that it does. You're oh, right. That's a great connection.
1: I never thought about that. It's true. And in my, uh, one of my essays for cup of Joe, I wrote about how getting sober felt like waking up in clean sheets every day. And I think about that all the time. Like it totally. You know, really does so a lot of like bed
0: morning sheets (laughs) that's what it's all about it all comes back to mornings thank you so much for staying so on theme during this interview yeah (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me like i said i think before i started recording i'm pretty sure we'd be best friends if we lived in the same city i just i really treasure this conversation and thank you so much for talking on morning person thank you for
1: having me thanks for reading the book and we're friends, even though we don't live in the same city. So I loved this conversation.
0: 100%. Um, And your book is available wherever books are sold. It's called Drinking Games by Sarah Levy. I can't recommend it more. I flew through it and just resonated with so much of it. And I think I would, even if I was drinking, it's just, it feels like this very universal story. We did. Yeah. <laughs> What's your dog's name? Brie, like like the cheese. Brie, Brie it's okay, it's okay. Oh um, my, that's perfect because my dog's name is Toast. Oh my gosh! So I, love... I feel like match made in heaven. Brie and Toast. That sounds delicious. Brie and Toast. I think she's okay now.